All right. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12. If you're just joining us, we have been in a series called Holy Ghost, and we've been talking about the Holy Spirit and his part that he plays in the life of a believer. And so we started uh, at the very beginning. Uh, in week one, we talked about the person of the Holy Spirit, and we answered the question, who is the Holy Spirit, and what role does he play in the life of the believer? His role primarily is to make us holy, to form our character into that of Jesus, and, and it's also to give us power. And then week two, we talked about the presence of the Holy Spirit, what it means to be the dwelling place of God, for God to live inside of you, to be called the temple of the Holy Spirit. And week three, we talked about the power of the Holy Spirit, and we laid some foundational bullet points for uh, for operating in the gifts of the Spirit. We talked about how it's God or the Holy Spirit who, who distributes the gifts, that he decides, he determines uh, who gets what gift, and he determines the amount of the gift. And we talked about how not every gift looks the same. Uh, the same gift looks different on, on different people. And we, uh, we've talked about um, how character is first and foremost when it comes to using the gifts. That ability and maturity are not the same thing. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 is squeezed right in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Those are two of the biggest teachings. That uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is one of the best teachings on the gifts of the Spirit and how to use them in the church. But right in the middle of all of it, is, is, a, is a chapter dedicated to talking about love being the motivation of what we do. And so we cannot venture out, begin operating in the gifts of the Spirit unless we have a motivation of love for other people, a motivation of service to other people, an attitude of humility. And last week we talked about the first three gifts. We talked about administration. We talked about this, the gift of helps or the gift of service. And we also talked about the gift of leadership. And I wanted to uh, recap for you the different categories that we're sticking with in this in this uh, series. I have a picture of a periodic table that we can put up there. Uh, if you notice, this is what you'll see on our website. If you go to take uh, a spiritual gifts, gifts assessment, you can do that on our website. And um, they've, break, they've broken it up into four categories. Now, I, I mentioned last week how I think it's a little bit of, it's a little silly that we break uh, the gifts of the spirit into different categories because multiple gifts fit into multiple categories. For instance, the gift of prophecy in the green right here uh, is considered a foundation gift, but it's also a revelatory gift for the Lord speaks to us. And so, uh, for the sake of clarity and and communicating in unison, we're going to stick with these four categories through the course of this series. But we talked about administration in the blue. These are the serving gifts right here. The, the red on the right side, these are the power gifts or the manifestation gifts. We have tongues, faith, healing, and miracles. In the blue, we have administration, leadership, exhortation, mercy, giving, and service or helps. And the orange is wisdom, discernment, knowledge, and the interpretation of tongues. And then these green ones are what we see in Ephesians 4 as what's known as the foundation gifts or the ministry gifts. Some refer to it as the fivefold ministry, but it's apostleship, prophecy, evangelism, pastoring, and teaching. And so we are going to finish with the blue here, the serving gifts today, by talking about exhortation, mercy, and giving. Let me recap for you. What the purpose of these gifts are about. You can take that off the screen now. Serving gifts, they demonstrate God's love by helping to manage, serve, and build up the body of Christ in practical and tangible ways. Manifestation gifts or miraculous gifts display the power and presence of the Lord among his people. They serve as evidence of the authority of God over all things. 
revelatory gifts reveal the nature and purposes of God. By demonstrating his truth, the Lord imparts or reveals information to be used to guide, warn, correct, and encourage the church while bringing glory to himself. And finally, we have foundation gifts, which are seen in Ephesians 4. And they're fundamental to the establishment of the church. And those with these gifts are needed for planting new churches and, and ministries today. One pastor that I've been listening to, uh, Pastor John Thompson at Sanctus Church in Canada, he refers to the gifts as ice cream flavors. He uses this illustration that I love. Think of all the different ice cream flavors out there. There's chocolate and vanilla and strawberry and mint chocolate chip, which is my personal favorite, by the way, if you ever wanted to get me some ice cream. Rocky Road, salted caramel or caramel, depending on how weird you are. I'm just kidding. And then you've got some of the stranger tasting ones like butter pecan, spumoni. Anybody like spumoni here? Pistachio. Anybody like black licorice flavored ice cream? Wow. Okay. Turn to your neighbor real quick. Just tell them which one of your, what's your favorite, your favorite flavor of ice cream? You see? Okay. That's good. That's good. They know now. Here's the thing. It's all ice cream, right? It's all the same thing. We're all talking about the same thing. When you turn to your neighbor and you tell them your favorite flavor of ice cream, we're all talking about ice cream. It's the same thing. But there are many different flavors of ice cream. And 1 Corinthians 12, 4 says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. The best ice cream shops in the world, your favorite ice cream shops that you've ever been to, they focus on quality and quantity. All right? They have good ice cream. It tastes awesome. But they also have a variety of flavors, don't they? I remember in Portland, there's an ice cream shop called Salt and Straw. Has anybody ever been to Salt and Straw in Portland? Okay. Well, you guys don't count. You're from Portland. (laughs) But, you know, the best ice cream shops have quality ice cream. And how important is it for us in the church to have quality or character in our spiritual gifts? That we are all operating in our spiritual gifts with the motivation of love, with what we see in 1 Corinthians 13, with an attitude of humility and a desire to serve others, to build up the church, not to promote ourselves, not to give ourselves a platform or to make a name for ourselves, but the quality has to be there. So many churches neglect quality, but also many churches neglect the quantity or the variety of spiritual gifts. Many churches, they stick to just one or two categories. They, they, they get scared. Many churches are scared by certain gifts of the Spirit. They're, they're scared to talk about it. They're scared to venture out and start discussing what does this look like practically in the church and how do we as the church begin to model this in a really healthy way. And so they avoid those gifts altogether and they stick to the one or two categories that they're comfortable with. But what happens is that church begins to get off balance. Anytime a church is operating in just some gifts of the Spirit and not embracing all the gifts that the Spirit has given to us to minister to the world and to build each other up, when we neglect certain aspects of the gift of the Spirit, we become lopsided and we become skewed. And it's important that as a church we maintain the quality of the gifts and we aren't selectively favoring some because we don't like other flavors. We don't like some of the gifts, and I know that some of the gifts, uh, they appear to be a little nutty. They got some nuts in them, and, and not everybody gives nuts a chance, but I want to give, I give the, the nutty flavors a chance this morning. So the things that you might be a little leery 
or hesitant to step into uh, in this series, we're going to step into those conversations and we're going to look at it from a biblical perspective. We're not going to, we're not going to cause anything weird to happen. We want to come approach these gifts with a biblical perspective because we want all that God has for us. Amen. And if you haven't had a chance, please feel free to take the, spir- the spiritual gifts assessment on our website. If you're a little hesitant to, to take those kind of assessments, some of you don't like personality quizzes because you're like, I just don't want to be boxed into this. You know, I'm a type nine with these letters before my profile. And I just don't like being boxed into this personality profile. And I get it. So here's what I would encourage you to do. Get around some of the people that know you the best and tell them, hey, what do you think? What do you see? Because oftentimes they'll say, oh, that's easy. This is what I see in you. And they'll be able to tell you what your spiritual gifts are. And I have a, I have a suspicion that some of you already know what some of your gifts are. Last week, we also talked about this very important piece of our conversation when talking about spiritual gifts. Because throughout this list of spiritual gifts that Paul gives us in Romans and in Corinthians, we see that many of these gifts are things that we are all called to practice. For instance, all believers are called to show mercy to others, right? All believers are called to give. All believers are called to encourage, to have faith, to know the difference between right and wrong, to be able to hear the voice of God. We are all called to step at some point into all of these gifts. But here's the difference between the gift, between having the gift and not having the gift, is does it come naturally? Does it come easy to you? And so I said this last week, and I'm going to say it again. Whatever is not a spiritual gift becomes for you a spiritual discipline. And I use this illustration of, a, of myself uh, shoveling snow out of my driveway versus my neighbor coming and just snow blowing it all out in five or ten minutes. The job still gets done. I'm still called to clear the driveway. But those with the gift, they, they, they do it more naturally. They step into that thing with ease. And it, it becomes almost second nature. And God has given you that gift. He's given you a grace for that thing. But for those of us who do not have a certain gift, that thing becomes for us a spiritual discipline. Because Paul calls all of us to eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. So let's jump into the next three gifts that we're going to talk about this morning. The first one we're going to talk about is the gift of exhortation. The gift of exhortation, it's listed in Romans 12. It's also known as the gift of encouragement. And the word exhortation comes from a root word that means to advocate or to comfort. Does this sound familiar? In John 14, verse 16, Jesus said this about the Holy Spirit. He said, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Some translations say comforter, but it's the same word. It it comes from the same word. Jesus says, I will give you another helper or comforter to be with you forever. So the word for this gift comes from the same Greek word, parakleite. Man, I'm just terrible at Greek words. Parakleite. And it's where we get the term helper or comforter, which is the title of the Holy Spirit. Now, exhortation is a gift that enables a person to encourage others to become mature in Jesus. And those with the gift of exhortation, they attempt to bring out the best in people, to bring them into spiritual maturity. And it's not only cheerleading and patting people on the back. You're the best. Keep going. You got this. It's not just that. But exhortation, it also includes rebuking fellow believers for their sins. It's not the same as teaching, although many teachers 
uh, teaching is something that inf- informs and equips, but exhortation is a call to action. And it's always rooted in the truth of Scripture. Many teachers also have a gift of exhortation alongside of it because uh, I believe that uh, my purpose as a, a teacher or my purpose as a preacher on stage is not just to relay knowledge, but my purpose when I speak on stage is transformation. Is I desire to see the Word of God transform hearts, and I desire to make it applicable, and for people to hear the words from Scripture and be able to consume it and say, I know what to do now. I can, I can work with this. I can take this home. I can do something with this. And that is what a teaching and exhortation gift looks like together, where teacher, teaching is to inform and to equip. Exhortation is to call you to action, to have you step forward into the promise of God. And it's always rooted in Scripture. This is an important part of this gift, is that people with the gift of exhortation are often reminded of verses in the Bible, truths in the Bible, and they're able to come along somebody who might be believing a lie or they might be depressed or they might be saddened about something. And an, a, a person with exhortation can come along and say, do you remember what the promise of God is? Do you remember what God says about this? He says to cast all of your anxiety on him. You can do this. You will not drown. You will not disappear into the darkness because God is with you. And a person with the gift of exhortation has this supernatural ability to wrap their arms around a person and also sometimes when people walk away from a gift from a person with a gift of exhortation they might feel warm and fuzzy but as they walk away they go ow i think they slapped me i think i'm bleeding because the person with the gift of exhortation has this incredible ability to say here's the truth god loves you keep going but you need to stop this you need to quit getting down stop living in self-pity stop living in depression Start declaring the words of God over your life. And so they walk away from a person of exhortation going, I know what to do now. I've been called into action. Jude, uh, he wrote the book of Jude in the Bible. (laughs) And he was exhorting people when he wrote this in chapter 3. He says, Beloved, while eagerly preparing to write to you about the salvation we share, he says this, I find it necessary to write and appeal to you to contend for the faith That was once for all entrusted to the saints. And so Jude is using a gift of exhortation when he says, I am compelled to say this. Hold fast to the faith that was entrusted to all the saints. Hold fast to the faith that you that you believe in. And there's many cases when when someone with a teaching gift. Oh, I already said this. They'll have an exhortation gift. The person in the Bible, though, that we, we see a person in the Bible that has an amazing gift of exhortation. And it's Barnabas. If you turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verse 36, it's also going to be on the screen. But Barnabas had an incredible gift of exhortation. In fact, he had such an incredible gift that they changed his name to match the gift. It says this in Acts 4.36. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. When the apostle... Check, check. All right. There we go. 
So when the Apostle Paul came to the faith, the other disciples, they shunned him, and they were afraid of Paul because they weren't sure of his conversion, if it was genuine. And Barnabas, Barnabas was the man who embraced and encouraged Paul and brought him to the other disciples, introduced him to the other disciples. In Acts chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, it says this, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. This is Paul. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas, he's the one who encouraged the disciples to embrace Paul, to, to believe that his, his encounter with Jesus was genuine. Barnabas also encouraged a man named John Mark, who had failed in his ministry. In Scripture, we see that there is this point in ministry that, that John Mark failed. In Acts 15, 37 through 39, it says this, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul decided not to take them, not to take them, excuse me, not to take with them one who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not accompanied them in the work. The disagreement became so sharp that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And so at one point in the ministry, uh, Barnabas said, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul said, no, he deserted us. He was not with us. He failed to do the work of the ministry. I'm not taking him with me. And so Barnabas and Paul parted ways and Barnabas took John Mark with him. And this disagreement over John Mark they caused them to separate, go different ways. But later, Paul says that John Mark, he was useful for service. And he wrote this in the book of Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.11. He says, Luke alone uh, is with me. And then Paul says, but get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So at some point, Barnabas reconciled John Mark back into the fold so that Paul saw him as useful for ministry once again. See, the ministry of Barnabas helped resolve difficulty between John Mark and Paul. And here's the thing. John Mark, he went on to write one of our four Gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John Mark wrote the book of Mark. And Paul wrote over half of the New Testament. So it's very likely that we would not have most of the New Testament if it wasn't for Barnabas. If it wasn't for Barnabas, who is operating in his spiritual gift to bring Paul into the fold of believers when he first was converted and to reconcile John Mark back into the fold, Barnabas had a supernatural gift of encouragement and exhortation. And without Barnabas, we probably wouldn't have most of the New Testament that we have today. Let me share with you a, a story from a couple years back. I have a friend who was thinking about divorcing his wife at some point. She started working at a new job. She was traveling a lot. And my friend felt like his wife didn't spend enough time with the family anymore. People from his church uh, started to surround them with support. And they eventually found a Christian counselor. But a lot of there was a lot of uh, arguments happening. Uh, she, she was starting to neglect her family a bit. He was starting to get defensive and start saying stuff that he probably shouldn't have. But they were surrounded with support by the church. They eventually found a Christian counselor who was able to show both of them 
how they were contributing to the demise of their marriage. And so she stopped traveling as much, and he repented of his desire to leave, and they were able to restore their marriage because people with the gift of exhortation came alongside of them and was able to help reveal the truth. What they needed to do was able to help call them to action, bring them back to Scripture. What does it say to husbands? It says to love your wives. Wives, what does it say? It says to submit to your husbands. And we can talk. That's a whole other message. I know I, some red flags just went up in there. Wait, what? We'll talk about that some other time. But we can see how important this gift is in the church. That without the gift of exhortation, people go missing. They don't know what to do. And a person with a gift of exhortation, with a gift of encouragement, is able to refer to Scripture and highlight the truth to people and call it out of them. Some of you here sitting here, you know this is you. You feel it in your spirit as I'm describing this. You say, you know what? I, I think that this is me. I have this, I have this ability uh, to refer to Scripture and to lead my friends and family back into the truth. And we're going to pray over everybody with these first six gifts at the end of this message. So hold tight. But let's go into the next gift. The next gift is the gift of mercy. The gift of mercy is mentioned in Romans 12, 8, where Paul says, if your gift is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Do it cheerfully. The Greek word means to help the afflicted or those seeking aid. Now, every believer is called to show mercy to others because God is a God of mercy, isn't he? In fact, Jesus himself he said this in this remarkable point of Scripture. He opened up the scroll of Isaiah. In Luke chapter 4, he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and he begins to read from the book of Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And he did exactly that in Luke 18 when a blind man called out to Jesus. And what did the blind man say? He said, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Jesus surrounded himself with the broken. He surrounded himself with the poor. He surrounded himself with the outcasts. And I believe the entire church is called to do the same. But outside the gift of mercy, or excuse me, outside of the mercy that we are all called to extend... The gift of showing mercy has to do with a special giving of one's time and of oneself. It involves deeds of compassion on behalf of people in difficult situations, perhaps the sick or the down and out. And the apostle says that those who exercise this spiritual gift should do it with cheerfulness. They should do it with a great attitude. They should be cheery about it. An example of someone with this gift in scripture is found in Acts chapter 9. It says this, uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. Now, the story goes on because Dorcas dies and she gets raised back to life. So if you're looking for an action-packed chapter of the Bible to read when you get home, you can read Acts chapter 9. The people with the gift of mercy... They have a heart that breaks with other people. Now, my wife and I both, our lowest scoring gift when we take assessments is the gift of mercy. I'm sorry if that's hard to believe for you because it's become a, a discipline 
and, and coming alongside people, learning to empathize with people, learning to sympathize with people, it's something that we have, to, have had to grow in uh, because our tendency is, wake up, stop doing it. Like, just go, just stop acting this way, fix yourself. And we have very little pity for people, but we've had to exercise the gift of mercy. I'm getting judged so hard right now. <laughs> Starting to sweat up here. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have confessed that to you. That's right. My, my grandma Mary, she, she was, that was like her highest gift was showing mercy to people. And typically, here's the interesting thing. Typically, those with the highest measure of this gift, they are the ones who have been shown or have experienced the greatest levels of mercy themselves. People who are great at extending mercy to other people are the ones who they themselves know what it's like to be at the bottom of the barrel where you need a helping hand. And the people who have experienced mercy are the greatest at showing mercy to others. They have a profound ability to get into the hole with people who are struggling and need help. They have patience and a heart that doesn't faint because showing mercy to others makes them feel truly alive. There's people in this room, when you show mercy to others and when you help the poor or when you volunteer somewhere, you walk away and you feel like, I was born to do this. I feel like I have been given. I feel like God has used me. I feel like I am the hands of Jesus. And you have a cheerfulness about you. You have a lightheartedness about you because you truly believe that you are the hands of Jesus. And you are. God is using people in this place with a gift of mercy. And he's doing it in a very practical way. Our church has an organization, or our church partners with an organization called His Helping Hands. And it was started by a woman in our church named Dawn Prince. I don't even know if she's here this morning. I, don't, I can't see her. Dawn Prince, she has a huge heart for those needing help. And she started an organization in our church, or through our church, called His Helping Hands. And if you have the gift of mercy, I would encourage you to reach out to Dawn. By filling out, you can fill out a Connect card. Uh, Put your name and your email on it. Make a note on the back that says His Helping Hands, and we'll connect you with Don. But people with the gift of mercy, they cannot help but come alongside people who are broken. They're the ones who, they don't walk by. They stop. When they see somebody in need, they stop, and they ask themselves, what can I do? How can I get into the, the hole that they're in? How can I get alongside of them, partner with them, and show them that there's hope? And here's the last gift that we're going to talk about. It's the gift of giving. The gift of giving is also mentioned in Romans 12, verse 8. It's, Paul says, if your gift is giving, then give generously. And like mercy, all believers are called to give. Not because the church needs your money. Not because God needs your money. But because generosity is a defining trait of a Christian. It's a marker of a Christian. It is, a, it is something that sets a believer apart from the rest of the world. Listen to this description of the first church in Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, 44 through 47 says, And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared the meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship 
those who were being saved. See, we cannot read Acts chapter 2 and not see a defining generosity that is on the first church. Where they would sell their possessions and give it to the poor. You see, God is generous. We serve, we worship a generous God. And he wants his people to experience the blessings of living a generous life. We say this I've said this before at the church, that God does not want generosity from you. He wants generosity for you. He wants you to experience what it's like to live a life with your hands open wide, saying, God, everything that you've given me is actually yours. It belongs to you. And when you live that way, when you live with your hands open, God will use you in so many ways that you never imagined you could be used for. He wants you to be a blessing to others. In fact, we see this over the nation of Israel. God comes to Abraham and he says, I am choosing you. I'm choosing your family. I'm going to single you out, Abraham. I'm going to single out the nation of Israel because through this nation, everybody else would be blessed. Now, eventually he was referring to Jesus who had come from the line of David in Israel. But God used his people to bless the rest of the world. And that is exactly what he does with us today. He blesses his children. He blesses his church so that we can go out and be a blessing to others. It's not to hoard it to ourselves, church. It's not to keep God's blessing for ourselves. To be the man in the parable that Jesus talks about, the man with the talent who buries it in the dirt because he's afraid of losing it. The moral of that story, when Jesus talks about the master who comes back, he doesn't talk about the amount of money that the man made. He doesn't say, he, does, he, doesn't, uh, he, he doesn't make a big deal out of the amount that was made. Instead, he says, why didn't you do anything with it? You could have at least just given it to the bank. You could have at least, you know, made interest on it, but you did nothing with what I gave you. The point is this, is that when God gives you a blessing, it's meant for other people. It's meant to bless other people. And generosity isn't something we can do only if we get a lot of money to give away. So many people say, oh man, if I could just win the lottery, I would donate so much to charity. I'd pay off my parents' house and then I would just give a ton away to charity. But then you give that person $100 and they don't know how to be, a gen- they don't know how to be generous with $100. See, generosity is not something that you finally get when you start making lots of money. It's an attitude of the heart that you can start fostering at any season in your life. It's about the desire you have to bless others. And Jesus told this story in Luke. In Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Jesus looked up. He saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury, and he also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of the others. All of these people gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. See, Jesus is addressing the attitude by which it was given, the desire by which it was given. This woman had nothing. This woman, every American, every sane American, when giving this woman financial advice, would say, no, don't do that. Here's what you need to do instead. But the kingdom of God is different. So let me get into this. There's two 
uh, there's, let me give you two more verses about giving from the Old Testament, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Here's what the Old Testament says, Malachi 3.10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And then God says, test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be, a, there will not be room enough to store it. See, this is the only place in the Bible where God gives us permission to test him. God says, listen, if you trust me with all that you have, by the way, God doesn't want 10% of your money. He wants all of your money. But he's going to settle for 10%. But 90% of your finances with God's blessing is better than 100% without God's blessing. And God says, test me in this. Not Give me money and I'll bring it back to you tenfold so you can have a boat and so you can get a bigger house. No, no, no. We're not, I'm not talking prosperity gospel church. I'm talking about there is an attitude of generosity, a life of generosity that God wants you to step in. Because when you step into that, let me tell you, financial worry, financial anxiety, if you learn to lean into God over, over your finances, there's a blessing that comes with that church. Here's what the New Testament says. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each, each of you should give what you have decided to give. Excuse me. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The Bible is clear that believers are called to give generously. But here's the difference between the discipline of giving and the spiritual gift of giving. Those with the spiritual gift of giving, they have a capacity to give without a second thought, without thinking about how it benefits them. They look for ways that they can give out money. They've even prayed. Maybe if you have this gift, I bet you have prayed, God, would you would you show me a way to make more money so that I can give it to this this person or so that I can be a blessing to this person? Maybe you've asked God uh um Maybe you go to extreme measures to bless others. You sell personal belongings or you give away personal things like cars. And you see somebody with a need and you have an extra car and you say, would you just take my car? Or maybe you let others stay in your home for free. You open up your house to them and say, no, I'm not going to charge you rent. I just want to bless you. I want to give to you. You have a heart that cheerfully, that generously just gives without expecting anything in return. This church, now, there's a lot of people in here that's going, yeah, that's not me. Many of us in this room have made giving a spiritual discipline and have learned through the discipline to do it with cheerfulness, to do it with a good attitude. This is something that the Lord has worked in my wife and I over the course of our marriage. When we first got into the ministry, I was approached by my pastor who said, hey, I just wanted to ask you, are, are you guys tithing? And I was like, that's inappropriate. Why are you going to ask me that? And he just said, well, you know, you're on leadership of the church, and, and you're a pastor, and, and we firmly believe that generosity and, and giving is, is one of the defining marks of a, of a Christian. So why are we going to ask other people to do it if you're not willing to do it yourself? Ugh, okay, well, yeah, I get And so we started giving off of our, our net income. 
And eventually the Lord spoke to our hearts and we were like, you know what? I, I think we're actually supposed to give out of our gross income because, you know, uh, the, the, the taxes, I, God gets the first. He doesn't get the middle. He doesn't get the last. He gets the first. So I want God to have the first before the taxes come out. And so I, we decided to start giving out of our, our gross income. And, and, and that was a difficult thing. It was a conversation my wife and I had together. We're like, I don't know if, we, if we're able to do this, but we just faithfully stepped out. And honestly, in the beginning, it was hard. We missed that money when it left the bank account. We're like, where did it go? And it was hard for us. But eventually, as, as the years went on, we learned, wow, God is really taking care of us. God is really, he says the testament this, and he is really providing. Every kid that we've added to the family, Church, kids cost money. You know this, right? When you add kids to the family, it gets more expensive. But every child that we added to the family, I always got a bump in my paycheck, and God always took care of us. And I know that there are those in here who have made giving a discipline, but there are those in here whose, whose spiritual gift is generosity, that you look for opportunities. Above it. You're the ones who, when we get up here and we say, hey, who wants to send a kid to camp for free? Who wants to, to donate money to send a kid to camp so they don't have to pay anything? You're the ones who are like, yep, sign me up. And when we asked uh, this church to give, for, to send our students to camp, we had o- over double what we thought we were going to bring in. We were able to send uh, kids with low income to camp, no problem, because of people in this church who are just operating in their spiritual gift. Let me give you, before we close, uh, an example of somebody in the Bible with this gift. And it's Barnabas again. This guy was amazing. Barnabas in Acts chapter 4, verse 36 through 37. Joseph was a Levite from Cyprus. The apostles called him Barnabas. The name Barnabas means the son of help. Barnabas sold a field he owned, and he brought the money from the sale and put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas sold his possessions. One interesting thing I see in here is that... um, Barnabas did this publicly. Now, I know I'm rocking some boats right now. Jesus says, you know, when you give, uh, uh, don't let your right hand see what your left hand is doing, but do it in secret. Do it with a good attitude. Uh, But there's a context to what Jesus was saying. And honestly, I don't, and this, you might disagree with this, but I don't think that giving always has to be private because here's an example of Barnabas who came in a public place and laid the money at the apostles' feet, and it's so public that 2,000 years later, we'll st- we're still talking about his generous gift. But Barnabas had this generous attitude, and, and here's the thing. When people see generosity and when people see how God uses generosity, they're inspired by it. The church gets encouraged. The church gets edified. It gets built up. What Jesus is referring to when he talks about not letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing, he's referring to the attitude of your heart. He's referring to don't, don't try to build a platform. Don't try to get attention because I tell you that you've already got your reward. If you did it so that other people would see you and acknowledge your gift, you've already got your reward. Jesus is referring to the attitude of your heart. And now I'm certain that Barnabas did not do this publicly for his own praise, for his own glory, but he did it to bless people. Now, you can disagree with that statement, and that's fine. We can talk later. But here's how I want to close this this morning. I'm going to ask the prayer teams to come forward. I've asked the Dormeyers, would you make your way up here? 
And uh, I'm going to ask my, uh, yeah, the bakers to come up. Kurt, would you come up? Uh, and Jethro and Cheryl aren't here. And Glenn and Rosemary aren't here. Hey, Fortners, would you be on our prayer team this morning? Thanks. Thanks for stepping in your spiritual, your new spiritual gift. Stand on up. Here's what we're doing, church. Mom, would you come up and pray on in the front as well? We've talked about six spiritual gifts in the last two weeks. We've talked about the gift of administration, the gift of serving, the gift of leadership, the gift of exhortation, the gift of mercy, and the gift of giving. And we need to understand that even though we are all called to step into these things to some extent, there's some people here whom God has given the grace to operate in these gifts with more ease. And church, here's what I want us to remember about these serving gifts. Remember that every gift, no matter how small it may seem, we talk about gifts of prophecy and gifts of healing as if they're supercharged by the Holy Spirit. That it takes an extra special anointing or an extra special relationship with the Holy Spirit to operate in those gifts. But the, these other gifts, these serving gifts, no, the Holy Spirit, you don't need as much of the Holy Spirit for that. That is false. That is not true. What we have to remember is that every gift Can you hear me now? Maybe you have been sitting in the background thinking, oh, it's just, you know what, my gift isn't, I don't know what my gift is. I'm not very strong in any gifts or I, I don't know, God, I don't feel like God wants to use me in mighty ways. Church, when you do that, there's something missing. There is something missing and the Holy Spirit wants to breathe new life into your giftings. He wants to bring new life not to promote you, not to give yourself a name, but to build up the church, to edify the church, to encourage other people. If you have one of the six gifts that we've talked about in the past two weeks, then I'm asking, would you come and receive prayer for the Holy Spirit to empower your gifts even more? So right now, as Christine is playing, if you have one of those six gifts of uh, administration, serving, leadership, exhortation, mercy, or giving. Please come to the front and allow us to pray for you. Don't be shy. Get out of your rows and come on up front. We want to pray for the Holy Spirit to empower 
what he's doing inside of you. And don't worry, if you don't operate in any of these gifts, we're going to get to you. We're going to be talking about your gifts in the future. But would you just hang out for a few minutes and just pray for those who are coming up to the front, and we'll close in just a minute.